Welcome to the Bible is Lit podcast, where we explore the Bible as a work of literature. We dig into themes, patterns, motifs, archetypes, and all kinds of crazy literary criticism and interpretation. We also tackle controversial topics from the Bible and riff on listener-generated questions and topics, ultimately looking for that question of what it means to be fully human. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're tuned in to the Bible is Lit podcast. Welcome or welcome back uh, today. What we are getting into, we're getting into Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So what we would call page two of the Bible. And as I've said before, like if you understand kind of the creation story and then this story, these are like the two main keys that set up Every story that is told in the Bible, whether Old Testament, New Testament, or thereafter, are established or riff on or contain patterns that were established in these first few pages of the Bible. And so if you kind of get the keys that unlock the understandings, the symbology, the archetypes, and what the authors and God, if you are a believer in that sense, are trying to communicate in these stories, then it brings together the whole Bible as one uh, continuous narrative that points to a couple of very key themes and how human beings are supposed to live life. Um, and so we're going to get into Adam and Eve today in the Garden of Eden story and pull out some of these patterns. Obviously, you can you can spend years just studying these couple of chapters that we're going to go through today. So. I'm going to start in Genesis, the second chapter, uh, verse 4. Kind of the source text for all of it is Genesis 2, verse 4, begins the literary unit, and then we end it in Genesis um, 4, and verse 2 is where we will wrap it up. Um, so we're going to hit some highlights in these verses and pull a couple of threads so in Genesis 2, verse 4, uh, we have, and such is the story of heaven and earth when they were created. And so this ends our creation narrative. We really have two creation narratives, um, right? We have the creation narrative that's all of Genesis 1. Then we have the creation narrative that is Genesis 2, verses 1 through 4. And then Genesis 4 puts a book in or ends that frame. And then we opened another frame. And uh, so... The beginning, end of verse 4, beginning of verse 5, it says, When the Lord had made earth and heaven, when no shrub of the field was yet on earth, and no grasses of the field had yet sprouted, because the Lord had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the soil, but a flow would well up from the ground and water the whole surface of the earth. The Lord formed man from the dust of the earth. He blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so, you know, kind of the context there is God in the order is very important. And then in these ancient types of narration, particularly ancient Hebrew literature and ancient Near Eastern literature, um, 
the order in which things happened is very important and we form contrast in these narrative structures too. So if you see a particular pattern where things keep happening in a similar order, similar order, similar order, then you hear a similar type of story or read a similar type of story, but the order is now all of a sudden different that is done on purpose and that contrast is meant to draw some things out and make a particular point. Um, and that's kind of the context that's going on here is we have this order like a God has made earth and heaven at this point. Um, but nothing yet has sprouted. God has put things into motion and these things are going to spring up into life as a result of the creative power he's imbued upon them. And that's what that word in the first in Genesis one means when there's all this repetition of let there be light, let there be this, let there be that. That word let doesn't mean God is there micromanaging every scenario. He creates a light and he says, let there be light. So let the light be light according to its nature. Let the fish be fish according to its nature. Let the water be water according to its nature. And now, so we have this creative context. Um, we have this flow that wells up from the ground and waters the whole earth and then in the midst of that god forms man of the dust of the earth so he takes a, a scoop full of earth or whatever the substance that he used to create earth with he creates man and then he blows into his nostrils the breath of life and man becomes a living being now this is very important because just before that again look at the very beginning of this literary units it's the very end of two four it says when the lord made earth and heaven so what is he doing here with man it says man was formed from the dust of the earth so here we have earth and then god blows into his nostrils the breath of life i.e god blows into man the himself which is heaven and man becomes a living being. Man is not a living being until God breathes into him. But again, we have earth and heaven at the beginning of this section of verses. And then we have that pattern reestablished in the repetition, even in the literary structure right here. God takes a handful of dust from the earth, the substance of the earth, right? He takes earth and he breathes into him himself, heaven, earth and heaven. And so now we have earth and heaven actually coming to meet within the body of a man at first creation. And so this establishes this pattern that heaven and earth, earth and heaven were never meant to be separate realms. And this is one of the major motifs that run throughout the Bible. So this idea, and this isn't even, I'm not making a theological argument here. I'm just saying in a pure literary standpoint, if we take the Bible as a work of literature and just evaluate it as a work of literature without investing any of our belief systems upon it, this idea that you got to be a good boy or a good girl so you can go to heaven when you die and heaven is this far off distant place. Or if you're bad, you go to hell when you die and all this function of the afterlife. That is not actually anywhere in the Bible. 
um, Old Testament or New Testament, and then in the literary patterns established, that is never something the authors, which then if you believe that the word is given by the inspiration of God, that is nothing that God's actually concerned about in the way the narratives, the poems, and all the discourses in this book is structured. If anything, this book is concerned with heaven and earth combined and overlapping right now and why the human beings, why humanity is not experiencing the overlapping of heaven and earth right now in the present moment and what we can do, and Jesus is the archetype of this, what we can do to develop our awareness to a point to realize that heaven and earth are overlapping once again and then building communities out of that. That's really what the book is about if you look at the literary pattern, and it's right there on page two of the Bible. Um, So in verse eight, now getting into some of the structure here, verse eight of chapter two, the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east and placed there a man whom he had formed. Um, And from the ground, the Lord God caused every cause to grow every tree that was pleasing to the sight and good for food and from the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and bad. So we have we got to kind of look at the structure here. You have this whole realm, which is called Eden. Okay, and then in the middle of Eden. So the realm in which Adam is existing is Eden. And right in the middle of that garden, or or right in the middle of this realm, this country, if you will, called Eden, God puts this garden, and then that's where he puts Adam, is in the middle of this garden. In this garden, which is part of this country called Eden, uh, verses 10 through 14, we have these um, rivers that sprout out of Eden. So again, the, the symbology of rivers and anytime you see water in the bible you've got different representations throughout the wa- of water in the bible water can represent life so in this sense and we talked about this in some previous episodes if you see water like from a well you have all these instances in the bible where jesus different people are meeting other people at really um prescient points in history where they're meeting people at wells and good things happen or God manifests or God shows up in the midst of wells, also rivers as well. So when you see kind of an ordered sense of water, water as a river, water as a spring, a spring of life is some of the imagery that's used in other places of the Bible, which is a throwback and a, um, a hyperlink back to these first few chapters of the Bible or rivers themselves. These ordered senses of water are life-giving, right? And so when Jesus says, I am the water of life, drink from me and you will never first, it's a throwback to this story in the Garden of Eden, right? This well that springs forth that waters the whole planet. So we have these four rivers in Eden, The other representations of water are like the chaos from first creation, the waters of chaos, which God brings orders to. So when we see a flood, when we see the Red Sea crash in on the Egyptians while the Israelites are crossing, that chaos represents a decreation, chaotic circumstance. And that decreation requires God and the spirit of God to bring order to it. So, Anyway, in Eden, 
um, we have these these waters that these rivers that spread out and water the rest of the earth. And then in verse 15, this is very important. Um, uh, the Lord took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to till it and to tend it. So this is very important because of the language here to till and to tend, uh, it can mean a lot of different things. But what is interesting about this if, is if you go Later in the Torah, the language here that is used to describe Adam tilling and tending this garden is the same language used to describe the work that the priests do in both the tabernacle and then later in the scriptures, the temple, once the temple is built. So again, now you have these layers where heaven and earth are overlapping. So how do we know heaven and earth are overlapping? We have God here in the garden talking to Adam. And so if God is here in the garden talking to Adam and God's of heaven and God breathed into Adam himself, we have a realm where the earth and heaven are overlapping just as Adam himself is of earth and of heaven. And the whole idea here is that mankind as a fully formed human being is supposed to do life in partnership with the divine man without the divine influence or rejecting the divine influence is rejecting a part of himself. And basically man is now just a really smart animal, but you're not meant to be a smart animal in the sense as a way the um, Bible story carries these things out throughout the various literary patterns and traditions. So to till and to tend, right? To cultivate and to take care of, um, same language that is used when the priests are described in doing their duties, whether it be in the tabernacles and the priesthood of Aaron early in the Torah or later when the temple system is established, when the kingdom of Israel is established. So, but the point being, now we've moved forward a couple generations and the children of Israel have continued to reject God's presence. God keeps coming to them, wanting to partner with them. Um, they tell him one instance in um, the Torah, God comes to them and says, all right, I'm going to be amongst you. Like, cool. And they say, no, you're too scary. Can Moses just talk to, um, can Moses just talk to um, you for us? And he's like, whatever you wish. Um, and so they established a tabernacle instead. So the tabernacle and the temple, and you could even take it so far as church today is supposed to represent these spaces reserved where heaven and earth line back up and overlap. But then Jesus comes later and he says, pray in this matter when he tells his disciples to pray. And this is revolutionary because them being good Jewish boys, they're like, we're supposed to go and we're supposed to go to temple so we can get enough of God and do our things and experience earth on heaven and heaven and earth overlapping. And then when Jesus says, no, pray like this, our father who art in heaven, right? Our father, God, who art in heaven, our place of his origin, hallowed or holy be, I, be thy name, meaning I have a holy fear. I have a reverence. I have an awe for God. Thy kingdom come. So come the thing you're trying to bring from there that will be done. What you want to do be done on earth. 
here right now as it is in heaven in your kingdom. And that's the revolutionary part of it. Because now Jesus is literally saying like, no, we're bringing it to earth as it is in heaven right now. And then it's a nod back to Adam being made from earth and God breathing his substance upon him. And then I nod back to the Garden of Eden where heaven and earth overlapped. And we'll look at some more examples where there's evidence that suggests that heaven and earth are overlapping in Eden. Um, So again, we have God talking to Adam, which means God is there with Adam. Heaven and earth are overlapping. This is how we're supposed to do life. Um, And the first command he gives them, and this is very important. First command, he says in verse 16, the Lord commanded the man saying, again, order is very important. What comes first? Of every tree of the garden, you're free to eat. So he's telling him, hey, eat of every tree in the garden. You know, and if you break down what those phrases mean in the Hebrew, basically it says, hey, enjoy what I've made for you. And then the secondary command is, but for this one tree, don't eat of it. Okay. So again, the order of the commands is very important. Just like we looked at earlier, the ordering in these ancient narratives um, is very intentional. And there's a point of emphasis in how the ordering is structured. Um. So then, uh, later, later in this chapter, uh, the Lord cast a deep sleep upon the man while he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that spot. And the Lord, and the Lord God fashioned that rib that he might have taken man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then um, Adam speaks a poem about this. Now, what is interesting about this in terms of the translation is this this idea that. Eve was made from a rib. So any other time that this type of scene happens and the context happens in the word that is used. um, So we have Adam sleeps, right? And then he wakes up. So this taking of one of his ribs, if you break down that linguistically, it's the same wording used when it means to dream so that word can be meaning to um to dream to have a dream about something and it also mean it can take it can mean the substance from what what was inside of you now you can kind of interpret through and translate it through to mean a rib, but every other time that is used in the Old Testament, every time other time that word is used, that phrase is used in the Old Testament, it's referred to as a dream. So my question there would be, why are we saying, when it's used every other instance in the Bible, every other instance in the Old Testament, um, we're using it as a dream. Now we're saying like, no, it's a rib. So any other time, like someone dreams a dream and gives a prophecy, shouldn't we be saying, no, they had a rib and they gave a prophecy. So something weird historically is going on with the translation there. And I'll leave it at that. But in either case, we have a third person in the garden or a second person in, in the garden right now. If we include God, that's three. And we have Adam, um, we have Adam and Eve. I think the context suggests that he had a dream about her and then she 
showed up. And so then the suggestion is that there were other people on the earth at this time, probably going through other experiences. And I know I, I can feel the daggers getting thrown my way already for um, a lot of the more evangelical audience that is listening but I'm just speaking out of the literary patterns that are established and the literal normative reading of this does not necessarily line up with how the people of the day would have read and understand or understood this. Um, so um, the end of chapter two, right? Verse 25, it ends like this again. The ending is very important. So we go from the ending. The two of them were naked the man and wife, yet they felt no shame. Now, immediately after that, into chapter 3, we are introduced to a third character. Now, the serpent was the shrewdest of all wild beasts that the Lord had made, and he said to the woman, Now, a couple of things going on here. The serpent symbolically represents two things. Serpents were representative of spiritual beings or beings that had extra knowledge. We'll just take that in these ancient Near Eastern stories. So the people of the day would have understood this as, oh, there's a serpent in the garden, meaning it's reinforcing this idea that spiritual beings are here in the physical terrestrial plane at the time. The other thing, um, serpents, Dragons and the light represented chaos and destruction. So two things are going on as we, um, the ancient Near Eastern understanding of this would have been, they read a serpents in the garden. This is a highly developed spiritual creature that has destructive tendencies is how they would have understood it. Um, and that's really the fault of the serpent. The big thing that the serpent does is not that the serpent kills Adam, kills Eve. The serpent twists the words of truth and the serpent preys upon the vulnerability of Eve, which is the same thing Cain does to Abel a chapter or two chapters later when um, Cain kills his brother. He uses his vulnerability against him. And then there's this whole pattern, this whole archetype that is established about God's justice and God's mercy that comes from the establishment of this idea of like true evil is using someone's vulnerability against them. And we don't even know the serpent's intentions here, but we have a serpent in the garden, and it, he's described as the shrewdest of all wild beasts. He talks to Eve, and um, what's interesting here, if you look in 3 verse 6, is that it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for eating and a delight to the eyes, so it's appealing to the senses, but the main thing is that, that the tree was desirable as a source of wisdom. She took and ate, and that taking becomes a motif throughout the Bible. You can read story after story after story where there is a taking, there is an exchange, and something that is taking through use of force. So like here she takes 
She doesn't consult God about it. She takes because she sees it's desirable as a source of wisdom. Well, where are you supposed to get wisdom from? Not from a tree, not from a snake, from God. So she takes, she tries to get the wisdom herself as if God is not going to provide the wisdom. And this is, you know, the real sin in terms of the pattern the taking of something, the use of force to try to get something that God was going to give them anyway. And so she also gave some to her husband and he ate and the eyes of both of them were opened. Now, remember the beginning of the chapter, they perceived they were naked. They sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. Right? So, into chapter two, they were naked and they felt no shame. Now they're naked and they're covering themselves up. A lot of symbolism going on there. I'm not going to break it down. Um, the Lord calls out to man and asks him, this is verse nine, where are you? Where are you? As if he doesn't know. But again, this is a rhetorical device that's going on. God knows where Adam is. But again, it's this relationship part. It's like when my son's playing hide-and-seek. He doesn't think I can see him, but I can see him. I know where he is. And I'll say, oh, I can't find you. Can't find you anywhere. And he's like, hi, I'm right here. So the Lord's kind of doing that. He's asking Adam, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Because they have that type of relationship. And he's given Adam, he's giving Adam, rather, the opportunity to respond. Because if God just uses force here, God breaks the relationship. And um, Adam replies, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, right? So they go from naked and unashamed to making their own clothes, but still saying that they're naked and now they're shamed. And um, the Lord asks, who told you you were naked? I didn't teach you that. Again, rhetorical question. Did you eat of the tree? for which I had forbidden you to eat. And then here's where the blame shifting happens. The man blames it on the woman, um, or Adam blames it on Eve. Eve blames it on the serpent. And then we get the establishment of guilt and now the need for a sacrifice right here. So another pattern is established, and you'll see that theme of blame shifting, of guilt, of debts owed, of even cycles of vengeance all have their origins back in, they go all the way back to this moment right here. Um, and the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? Now, if you flip forward into chapter four, this is the same, the very same Thing God says to Cain when he kills his brother. And so you'll see kind of how the stories are structured and these patterns are played out. The details are just slightly different. Again, that's all done on purpose. There's a very elaborate, intricate design behind all of this, which is pointing us to what is justice, what is mercy, heaven and earth overlapping, how do we get back to that place and all of those other big questions? Um, all right, so Eve blames it on the serpent. Now God says to the serpent. So big point of contention here for a lot of people. 
Uh, but let's just look at what it says. It says, um, the Lord God said to the serpent, right? The serpent, probably the understanding of this was it was a spirit, some type of spiritual being. So it says, um, because you did this more cursed shall you be than all the cattle and all the wild beasts. On your belly you shall crawl in the dirt. You shall eat all the days of your life. All right, so the dirt, right? Meaning you have a spiritual being who's now not allowed back to wherever it was he came from. Now he has to exist or it has to exist in a lower state. And if you think about it in terms of mindsets that people can have, it, it provi- provides a nice parallel. Um, but did God curse Adam or Eve right here? No, he doesn't. He curses the serpent. So it's the serpent. It's the accuser. It is the one who takes advantage of someone else's vulnerability. One who has knowledge but not does not use that knowledge to help but uses that knowledge to either gain an advantage or to hurt, that is who is cursed. So God curses a serpent here. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. They shall strike at your head and you shall strike at their heel. Right? So he's putting enmity between the woman and him and then her offspring and his and then this establishes the need for Christ later or Messiah to come and he will be the one who strikes the head of the serpent or stands on the head of the serpent for good and his heel getting bruised representing his crucifixion if you study this whole thing out I don't have enough time to do that in this episode and he says to the woman Notice the language here. He does not curse the woman. He's like, I will make most severe your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bear children, yet your urge shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And we take this and we think that Eve was cursed. He doesn't curse Eve. All he says is like, because of what has happened, um, severe are your pangs going to be in childbearing. Now, what that means is the enmity between her and the serpent or her offspring and the serpent, which means this serpent, this accuser, because of the choices she made, this serpent is now going to have influence into the lives of her children. So we see that in the next chapter, what happens? She has two sons. One of the sons kills the other son. There's the enmity right there, right? And then you have this image of sin lying at the doorstep on its belly like a serpent, Right, which causes Cain to kill Abel. He gives into it, you know. So it's not that Eve is cursed, but this pain is the result of a choice she made, and now these consequences have to bear out. Another way this can be interpreted in the way the language is used. Again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm just enough. I know just enough to be dangerous. So you can study this out on your own. But these pangs in childbearing can also relate to um, barrenness, difficulty getting um, pregnant, not being able to be fruitful and multiply as 
God would want you to. And then again, if you study out the biblical pattern all throughout the Old and the New Testament, all throughout the Torah, the Nevi'im and the Ketavim, and into the New Testament scriptures, we see this pattern of women not being able to bear children. And then you have this pattern of miraculous births. That's another element that begins right here, these pangs in childbearing. Part of that is this relation of barrenness and having to rely on God for the fruitfulness or for the fruit of the womb. Now, does God curse Adam? To Adam, he said, because you did as your wife said and ate of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed be the ground because of you. He doesn't curse Adam He curses the ground. By the toil, by toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall sprout for you, but your food shall be um, the grasses of the field. By the sweat of your brow shall you get bread to eat until you return to the ground from for from it. You were taken for dust. You are and dust. You shall return. And so again, this is rejecting the voice of God because you have rejected the voice of God in this instance and now i can't teach you the wisdom because you opened a door that was not supposed to be opened without his guidance um so a lot of stuff going on there but i really wanted you to see that the cursing of humanity wasn't there the ground was cursed the environment in which they were in is cursed and part of that is because they chose knowledge with without for out from underneath, they chose knowledge. They chose to partake of wisdom. They chose something that was good in their own eyes without consulting God. And it ended up being very bad for them. And then when you choose something which looks good in your own eyes, but it's not submitted to the wisdom of God, that's what the story is communicating. Um, it has consequences that you don't foresee. So in this instance, this realm that they exist in, they can't exist in it anymore and so what happens uh god and the lord god said now that the man has become like one of us this is in 323 uh knowing good and bad what if he should stretch out his hand and also eat from the tree of life and live forever so the lord god banished him from the garden of eden to till the soil from which he was taken he drove the man out stationed east of the garden of eden a cherubim and the fiery ever turning sword to guard the way to the tree life so then the question is okay like if god's a forgiving god is god is a just god why would he cast adam and eve out of the garden of eden well that what that passage indicates and what it suggests to us is that because adam and eve chose to live outside of the will of the lord and not seek him for wisdom if they ate of the tree of life, so if they have this knowledge, this divine knowledge, but it's not submitted to God and his guidance, and then they're able to live forever, that is like the ultimate curse because now they're living life separate from God, doing what is right in their own eyes without God's guidance, and they're also able to live forever. So, what the passage is insinuating here is now that they have become mortals, now that they are mortals and at some point they will die 
although they have this advanced divine knowledge now, all of a sudden, the fact that they can die and they aren't in the garden is an act of mercy because the greatest curse would to be to have divine knowledge, but it not be submitted to God who is good, trust, um, or who is good, just, trustworthy, and merciful. And the overarching point being is now we had heaven on earth, but now these realms have become separate because of the choice Adam and Eve made. Now God throughout the scriptures is going to try to reestablish spaces where heaven and earth can meet once again, but it is humanity that continues to reject God again, established Right there in page two of the Bible, when Adam and Eve run from God after eating that fruit. So, a lot of stuff going on there in this section, um, in this unit, we're calling destruction and rebirth. So, not that the Garden of Eden is destroyed, but the whole context and what it means to be human here is established. But Adam and Eve make a choice to destroy the connection they have between themselves and God because they choose what is good. And the Hebrew word for that is tov. They choose what is tov, T-O-V, um, in their own eyes. But the results of it are not good for them. And then it taints their relationship with God and ironically the relationship with the natural world around them and of course we got examples and examples and examples of this in the scriptures but also again this being wisdom literature and being meditation literature these things bear out on a large scale in our lives today so that's it um next section we will be looking at Noah and the flood and all of the connections between destruction and rebirth and even some shout outs to Adam and even the Garden of Eden in that story next. Thank you guys for listening to the Bible is Lit podcast. <laughs>